Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I hope you're having a good day, good evening, or good night, wherever you're listening. And we're back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history. And I appreciate you taking time out to listen through your busy day. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here. And check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Now, this upcoming Sunday is Super Bowl 56 taking place in Los Angeles between the Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals. And this being our Super Bowl edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, we're going to be talking to football historian and co-host of from the 55-Yard Line Podcast, Mr. Greg James, as we talk about the Super Bowl histories of both the Rams and the Bengals who have combined to compete in six different Super Bowls. Also on the show, instead of our top five, we will highlight the seven Super Bowls that have taken place in Los Angeles, including the Super Bowls in nearby Pasadena's Rose Bowl. And also, we will be sending a shout out in our final edition to a past Super Bowl MVP that took place in the City of Angels, whose perfect performance made him the first defensive back named Super Bowl Most Valuable Player. So pump up the volume because you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintails.com. Hello, guys, and welcome back to the show. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're listening to the Super Bowl edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And this week, as you all know, unless you've been living under a rock for the last for the past week or so, we're heading into this is Super Bowl week, and um, this week's this year's matchup for the big game is 
a matchup that not a lot of people predicted at the beginning of the year, and it came to the surprise to a lot of people. And talking about the Los Angeles Rams, second year in a row that the Rams are playing at home. The Rams, I mean, the Super Bowl is played by a team playing in their home stadium, I should say. They're going to be taking on the surprising Cincinnati Bengals in their first Super Bowl since 1988. And um, we're going to talk, we will be talking about the history, the Super Bowl histories of these two teams, which has been pretty incredible if you really take into consider, consideration that the Super Bowls that the Rams and Bengals have participated in have gone from good games to great games to legendary games in the history of the big game. And talking about that uh, on this episode is the co-host of the, from the 55-yard line, Mr. Greg James. Greg, great to have you aboard once again, returning champ. So uh, how are things going, man, and what's going on with you these days? Uh, I'm doing good, man. I'm just, you know, dealing with winter up here in Chicago and uh, just kind of chilling today. It's kind of a, a nice, relaxing Sunday. We got the Pro Bowl on later, and, yeah, life's good. I'm not complaining. Uh, that's like, Better you than me in Chicago. <laughs> I'm here in Atlanta, and um, it's pretty – it's cold considering we have been here in the south. You know, it's in the 30s right now, which is unusual – for it to be that cold and doing the doing the day, but um, anyway, we got a big big game coming up within uh, next week between the Rams and the Bengals in Super Bowl Fifty Six, and we were talking that right before we came on, and um, they've been in, involved in some very interesting Super Bowls in the past, and um, hopefully this Super Bowl could live up to those games that took place in the past. Yeah, and you know both teams. I mean, all these Super Bowls they've been in, uh, none of them have been blowouts. I mean, all of the Super Bowls that we're going to talk about have been relatively close games. Right. You know, first one we're going to talk about. You know, we're going to go kind of like we're going to go team by team. First, we're going to start off with the Rams, and um, the Rams have played in four Super Bowls previously to this one, and the first one took place at the end of the nineteen seventy nine season with they, when they were based in L A. Um, they were taking on the Pittsburgh Steelers in Super Bowl fourteen in a kind of a home atmosphere because it wasn't in L. It was in L.A. proper, but it was in Pasadena, the second Super Bowl ever played in the Rose Bowl, and it was somewhat of a home game for the Rams. But you still had a, a lot of Steeler fans that was at that game, and the game really was a great, great game. You know, as you know, as, as we remember. It was um, it was surprisingly a great game because if you remember that Rams team went in at nine and seven and up until when the Arizona Cardinals made the Super Bowl in Super Bowl forty three they were considered the uh, the worst team to ever have made the Super Bowl. And, you're right, they uh, were nine and seven. You're right about that. And then they had yeah, you know, it was you know that that team was. It was the, the 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 one Rams team throughout the whole decade of the seventies that you least expected to make the Super Bowl. Well, yeah, but back you know, like back in the seventies, the uh, the Rams were always, you know, if you look back at the uh, you know you look back at the standings from the seventies, the Rams were always division champions, and they were in pretty much you know, and I have to do my research here, but I think they were in every playoff during the seventies and just. You know, I can't think of a, a year that they weren't, but they were never, they always got to the conference championship and they were either beaten, you know, at some point they were either beaten by Dallas or Minnesota. 
So them being in the, the Super Bowl in 79, not that it was a sh- it was a shock because they weren't that great of a team, but for many it was like, oh, it's about time he got here because it just took so long for them to, you know, actually become NFC champs. Well, that year, you know, you had the 79, which was they had so many things going on with that team during the year, from what I remember in 79. I mean, first off, you had Vince Ferragamo starting that quarterback in the Super Bowl, and he was a backup for most of the year. Right. You know, because I think he replaced, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, he replaced um, Pat Hayden. Yes. Because Pat Hayden had gotten hurt earlier in the year, we're right right before the playoffs, you know, and then Vince Ferragamo comes in and he pretty much leads them to an upset win over Dallas in Texas Stadium, you know, yeah. which they never which they never won, and then Jack Youngblood playing on a broken leg, and right. you know, and it was it was a team that was just then then you had the the owner Cal Rosenblum dying in the offseason. You know, yeah. in being and he in Georgia Frontieri becomes owner of the Rams, become the first female owner in pro sports history. Um, it was it was a very tenuous year for that Rams team. They had a lot of drama going on with that ball club. Yeah, and 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 really, I mean, it was in terms of just the team itself. He had the drama, and also too, this was kind of the beginning of, in many ways, the end of the first version of the L.A. Rams. Because if you think what you know, it wasn't too long, many years later, that they went down to Anaheim and right. played in Anaheim. And, you know, it's in a way, I want to say it was kind of, it was, it, it was the end of, I guess, the golden era of the Rams in the 70s. Because after that, the team kind of went in, even though they went to the playoffs, they, they you know, they, they played against the Bears in 85 in the NFC Championship. You know, they had Eric Dickerson. The teams of the 80s weren't as good as those teams of the 70s. The teams of the 70s started off with Roman Gabriel. I mean, there's a whole list of all-stars. Roman Gabriel, um, I would even include Pat Hayden in there, but uh, Jack Youngblood, Fred Dreyer, people remember him. Um, So, you know, when I look back, you know, I think we all remember, any of us a certain age, remember watching the movie Heaven Can Wait, and that was based on the L.A. Rams. That was when the Rams were in their heyday. You know, I would tell people when they when they first moved to Los back to LA, I would tell people that once upon a time the Rams were on par in popularity with the Lakers. You know, they were like the LA Lakers right. of football because not only because they were in Los Angeles, obviously, but they were like the NFL's glamour team for the longest time. Yeah, but they they very much were. They're very Hollywood. You know, they were, and they had. You know, you you mentioned some of the players of them. You know, you you mentioned Fred Dryer was one of my favorite, one of the great characters of the NFL. But you also had really great players. Isaiah Robertson was that linebacker. You had guys yeah. like Nolan Cromwell and you know, Greg Elmendorf in the defensive backfield offense. You had right. um, Lawrence McCutcheon at running back and Wendell Tyler and, and Kelvin Bryant and those guys part of that 79 squad that won the NFC championship over Tampa Bay. And that was something of a unique yeah. NFC championship game for the most part, because you had a Rams team that wasn't expected to do much in the playoffs as a, you know, as you pointed out in the beginning, they struggled in the playoffs against Minnesota and against Dallas but they played an upstart Tampa Bay team who was like a sentimental favorite 
to get to the Super yeah. Bowl because they had gone winless two years earlier. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, remember that time period very well. I mean, so between like 73 and 79, the Rams won the West seven times in a row. Yeah. But by the time they got to this Super Bowl, they uh, it was the worst record they ever had. But, yeah, like you said, going in to play the Buccaneers. And the Buccaneers were a great team that year. And, yeah, like you, I was – when and I was, what, 12 years old when that – game happened and I was rooting for the Bucks. I think yeah the Buccaneers were the sentimental favorite but if I think and again I'd have to go back and look here at the game but if I remember it was kind of a sloppy field that they played in and yeah, it was it only was, it was a nine to nothing game nobody yeah. scored a touchdown yeah and they the Bucks had a chance from what I remember that game I was I remember watching film of that game because I was in 79 I was five but anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I remember watching that game with them and the Bucks, and they had the Bucks had a touchdown late in the fourth quarter that would have got them back. They would have got them back into the game, but it was called back for a phantom illegal motion penalty. It was a right. long touchdown pass from Doug Williams to Jimmy Giles that was called back, and it was it pretty much took all of the air out of the out of the Bucks, you know, from that point on. Uh, yeah. And talking about Super Bowl fourteen, it was that game. From what I remember, again, I was five years old. But one of the things I remember about that game, from a personal standpoint, was my dad and my grandpa watching that game, and they were rooting both for rooting for the Rams for different reasons. My dad was a ultimate Steeler hater because of the immaculate reception. Because my dad's an ultimate Raider fan, and yeah. he despised the Steelers even to this day, and. <laughs> My grandfather, growing up in Louisiana, my grandfather was a Rams fan before the Saints came along. He was right. a diehard Saints fan. And looking at Super Bowl fourteen, people forget the Rams had the lead heading into the fourth quarter. It was something of a surprising yeah. development well, they, because you had the Steelers, who were the defending Super Bowl champs, and then you had the Rams with a backup quarterback leading and in, heading into the fourth quarter. Yeah, and the Rams were leading pretty much the entire game after. But and he, you know, the the score of Super Bowl fourteen is a lot. Um, it, it makes it look like it was all Steelers, but no. I mean, the Steelers won that game in the fourth quarter with two, you know, strikes. But before that, the Rams were leading. I mean, when the fourth quarter started, the Rams were uh, kind of uh, pretty much in control, and you know, the Steelers did what the Steelers. Um, I think everybody expected to, but the Steelers did not dominate this game. You remember that the what broke the what broke the game over for the Steelers was the seventy four yard touchdown pass from from Bradshaw to Stallworth, and then, the, then right. they hooked up again later on in the quarter to set up their final touchdown with Franco Harris plunging it in. I tell you, on a side note, I learned a lot of NFL history through NFL films. Yeah. That highlight film with Super Bowl fourteen has got to be one of my favorites. Yeah, and it's um, you know it's uh, it, it, to me when I watch you know you're probably the same way. I love watching the NFL films from the seventies because that uh, you know very much very much in a Hollywood vein that movie was. I mean, kind yeah, of the whole setting. I mean, if it weren't for the Rams, I don't think we would remember it like we do now. Um, you know, but even like before then, Heaven Can Wait came out the movie like a couple of years before and they had the Rams and Steelers 
in the Super Bowl. Now, in the movie, they played it at L.A. Memorial Coliseum, right. but it was it was kind of interesting. Like you know, within a short period of time, you had real life kind of imitating art. That's right, exactly. Now, the Rams would eventually. Everybody knows what happens. You know, they lose Super Bowl fourteen. They go through the entire decade of the eighties, getting close. They got close in eighty five. They got close again in nineteen ninety. Going back to the NFC Championship game with Jim Everett and Flipper Anderson and that group. But ended up leaving and moving to St. Louis in the mid-90s. By 1999, you get the St. Louis Rams with an unknown quarterback named Kurt Warner leading the St. Louis Rams back to the Super Bowl with an improbable season against another improbable team, the Tennessee Titans, and what a lot of people consider the greatest ending to a Super Bowl ever. Right. Um, at least one of them. I think there's some, there's few that's, that, that 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 rivals that one. But as far as like sheer excitement and sheer drama, that yeah. Super Bowl, that final drive by the Titans against the Rams, and you know, and, and the tackle at the one yard line by you know the tackle on the one yard line preventing Kevin Dyson from getting into the end zone has to be one of the greatest endings to any really any sporting event that we've seen over the last 20 years. And it's right. hard to believe that it, that game is over 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think all of us are still, and you think about it, surprised that the Titans did, weren't able to get it over the plane that were that short because that was a great game. And that would have been, I think, and I, again, I have to look at the score, but I don't know. Um, would that have game have gone into overtime? I if don't the, the Titans would have scored and hit the extra point. It would have been the first Super Bowl to go into overtime. Yeah. And it yeah, would have yeah. it would have been an unbelievable you know ending you know to that game because the Titans was driving down the field and I remember there's one particular play by um, Steve McNair where he broke like five tackles and threw the ball down the field to to I think to Dyson you know I mean he must have broke about five or six tackles in the you know while in the backfield to get just to get the ball off and it was if it was a completion. I think that a lot of people would have remembered that along with the you know the, the the helmet catch, you know, with the Giants in Super Bowl forty two as one of two of the greatest escapes by a quarterback in Super Bowl history. Yeah, yeah. And of course that that Super Bowl, I mean for all I mean, it's mostly remembered as the Kurt Warner Super Bowl. Yes. Yeah, it it, it was. I mean with I mean it would it was the, the the Rams, for what I remember, the Rams had mo- had the lead for most of the game. You know, it was like a nine nothing lead at the half by the Rams, and then the Titans came back, and in late in the fourth quarter, Kurt Warner finds Isaac Bruce on a seventy some yard touchdown pass. You know, to give them ultimately the lead and the game, but the game really yeah. came down to that. Yeah, and the Rams. I mean, you know, the Rams were in control, but it was that fourth quarter that um you know it goes to show you that it's not over till it's over and you know the the titans were uh the titans were in full gear in fourth quarter you know but for just a few inches you know that game the story could be so much would have been so much different yeah exactly that that game i remember watching it with a group of friends um and it was one of those games where it was like, you know, what would you do in this situation? You know, and, and it, it was like, you know, typical Super Bowl party where everybody's like doing their own thing or whatever. Yeah. And then like right 
midway through the fourth quarter, every eye in the place was was zoomed in on the television because they did not know what was going to happen next because the game ended up being so good. Yeah, and this was kind of the era where we started seeing the um, the games be the Super Bowl games being close. Now, I think the following year it was the Ravens and the Giants, and that was a blowout. But this is kind of where you start to see. You know, we had some close games in the 90s. Didn't really have a whole lot of close games in the 80s. The 70s was hit and miss. But this is the era, this is the beginning of the era when really the Super Bowl actually started living up to the hype. Yes, it, you're exactly. We, you know, that, that Super Bowl between them and the Titans, again, has to be one of the greatest finishes that you could possibly imagine because it was just, it was like one of those, you know, it, and then it was the final play of the game. That was yeah. what made it so great. It was like, you know, it wasn't like a fourth down play and the Rams got the ball and they ran out the clock. And they, no, this was the last play of the game. Okay, and it was just so exciting, and it just came down to that one climactic moment, you know, and it was one of those games that you could just sit back and just relive and watch that game all over again, and you probably would get excited all over again watching that game because it was just so well played. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, even the Rams were favored by seven. I mean, and and they, 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 obviously, they, 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 you know, for gam, I mean, I'm not a gambler, but uh, I think in gambling purposes, they hit this, you know, they were dead on in terms of, you know, um, the point spread, but that game could have gone either way. And, you know, that's what kind of made the game special. It was like, oh, wow, we've got to, we, you know, you were hooked up until the very end. Now, two years later, the Rams were back in the Super Bowl and they were favored again, but this time against the New England Patriots and a young quarterback named Tom Brady. Now they were heavily, they were, I think they were heavily favored to win this game because, you know, the Rams had tore through the regular season. This was the heyday of the greatest show on turf. And it was, you know, with Marshall Falk, I think Marshall Falk was league MVP that year. Yeah, they were, they were were just a phenomenal offense to watch. The hype up to it was very much and i wasn't i mean i was you i was around in super bowl three but i was i was only two but i mean they, they were being compared to um they were all they, it, they were being compared they were being considered one of the greatest teams of all time yes. and going into that super bowl the patriots were deemed to have no chance i remember i was i was a young sports reporter in louisiana that was I was, I was right at that Super Bowl in 2001, you know, yeah. and with, with 2002, January of 2002. And well, actually, February of 2002. It was right not too long after 9 11, and mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was whole patriotic theme and everything. And, and I did some research, and they had like a totally different, they changed the logo of the Super Bowl right before yeah. that game with the, the American flag draped over the, the, um, Super Bowl yeah. trophy. Before that, it was like this New Orleans theme because the game was in New Orleans. But um, it came right down to a final field goal by Adam Vinatieri. Patriots won 20 to 17. But the Patriots dominated the first half. You know, they went into halftime. Uh, at one point, they were up seven. The Rams were up 17 to three. And they're about to, okay, this is when they're going to turn it on. I mean, the Patriots were up 17-3. They, right. one, one play that I remember vividly was the Ty Law interception. The Ty Law picked six in the first half, you know, which pretty much set the tone for the remainder of the game until the fourth quarter, and then the Rams woke up. Yeah. 
Well, and but they woke up, you know, obviously they woke up a little too late. And, you know, also, too, just for, um, you know, the, the old saying is, you know, I don't believe in jinxes, but on this one, and I forget who said it, but on the NFL films, one of the Rams players says, tonight a dynasty begins. Yeah. And, and that's where things ended for him right there. <laughs> Yeah, you know they didn't go back to the Super Bowl for you know until they went back to L.A. Yeah, it, it was with that Super Bowl. From what I remember, you know there was the beginning of the the, the Adam Vinatieri heroics in the Super Bowl. That was his first one where he yeah. kicked the field goal to win a game. He happened a few years later when he did it against the the Panthers. Um, but that Super Bowl, from what from you know. It was a, was another great game. Another notable side note about that game was that was the last Super Bowl that was called by Tom, by, by Pat Summerall and John Madden. Right, right. That was the yeah, very last was, one that those two that, came, combined to do a Super Bowl together. Which that, was, that and was they, the they, 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 they kind of mentioned that during the last drive. Yeah. And it was like so subtle. You know, and that's one of the things, you know, I'm a big Pap Summerall fan because I, he's, he's like a member of the family. Him and John Madden, watching, listening to them pretty much my whole life, they were almost like members of the family. But that was the last Super Bowl called by those two men. Right. Well, and it's funny, too, thinking about that. So that was the last Super Bowl called by them. But that was also the time period, and this is completely off topic but related, that Frank Caliendo's man impersonation was in its prime. Yes, yes. And so the next day he go Caliendo goes on a radio station. And I've got the recording. I mean the recording is out there. And he is in he's in full man and he talks about the game and it is one of the funniest bits out there. Um <laughs> you know talking about, you know, the the the, the DJ goes yeah, great analysis there, and 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 Caliendo and and Man's voice goes, yeah, and I still don't think they should have got they they should have gone for it because if you remember, <laughs> Man was like they should kick the field goal right here, yeah, and then you know they're like oh bad analysis, it's like well I mean it was the one time where Madden you know was, his analysis was completely off base, but then again I think most of us were saying kick the field goal, get yeah. this thing into overtime because and again we didn't know how good Brady was back then. But, you know, obviously, you know, we know what happened next and history was made and, you know, um, and they were, you know, um, you know, they, they pushed it or no, no, what it was. No, I take that back. Just play for overtime. Play because, for, that's right. That's right. Cause they yeah, play for over. It wasn't even it. kicking. It was kicking tied. It. So they were just right. like, just go play for overtime. You yeah, know, just kneel it, play, yeah. Kneel it, play for overtime. Instead they went for it and got it to where they could, you know, get, you know, history was made and, you know, you know, Tom Brady's career began then. But yeah, it was one, you know, again, another good example of the, the Super Bowl living up to the hype. But yeah, the Rams were, uh, you know, the Rams were hev- heavily favored. And if I'm not mistaken, it was, I think the, the heavy, the, uh, the biggest margin predicted since like Super Bowl three. And right. we all know what happened in Super Bowl three. Right. They were. And <clears throat> that, you know, the, from what I remember of that game, you know, leading up to it was not whether the Rams were going to win the game or lose the game. It was like, OK, how many points are the Rams are going to win this game by, you know? Right. 
Yeah. You know, because yeah. a lot of people were discounting. Yeah, Belichick, he came up with an outstanding game plan in Super Bowl 25 against the Bills when he was the defense coordinator for the Giants. He came up with a dream defense, you know, defensive game plan against the K-Gun. But what yeah. is he going to do against this? You know, right. that was the talk. How bad, was, you know, the, the Super Bowl was going to be a coronation. They, people were saying this yeah. would be the biggest blowout, one of the biggest blowouts in Super Bowl history. The Patriots had a backup quarterback in Tom, young backup quarterback in Tom Brady, who no one had heard of. Right. And it was like, and they weren't really supposed to be there. They lucked up and got there. They weren't supposed to beat the Steelers in the, in the AFC championship game. And so they ended up playing the Rams, and the Rams was basically this, juggernaut you know as the guy said doing doing the nfl films highlight this is where a dynasty begins where right. unfortunately he was right but not what he expected yeah well that was it was you know it's kind of the twisted irony in that he's like yeah he was right it just was the wrong team and um i think to even to this day he still has not lived that down <laughs> now we've talked about the three previous Super Bowls with these with the Rams. You had the two in St. Louis, one in, and you had the one in Los Angeles, and then they had one where they returned to Los Angeles and they played in Atlanta at Super Bowl Fifty Three, which is just three short years ago, and yeah. it was a great game if you like defense. This right, was yeah, it's... a defense. This was a defensive game. If you look up defensive football games in the dictionary, you're gonna see this game right here. Oh yeah, and you know it's it's funny because if you just think about Super Bowls and teams and venues, the the Rams and the Patriots, you're back in. Oh, that's right. You know what? I take that back. That's right. They were in it. Or were they in? Wait, were they in New Orleans for this one? No, they were in Atlanta. They were here. They in were in Atlanta. Why was I thinking? You know what? I'm thinking. I you know here's my thinking because I think I'm a little. And again, it's probably just gonna have a cup, cup of coffee. Just going talking about the Patriots for their first three Super Bowls. Their New first Orleans. three Super Bowls they appeared in were they appeared in New Orleans. They're all in New Orleans. You're right. You were yeah, all in New so Orleans. That's what's, that that's what's throwing me off here, and you know, it was like during that era. I mean, you had Atlanta. Atlanta was a host, and Atlanta was in a Super Bowl. And yeah, I, you know, sometimes there's been so many Super Bowls. Sometimes my memory gets a little fuzzy on the uh, ones in the 21st century. Because let's face it, a lot of stadiums look alike now. They do, they do. You, you, you're exactly right. And this was the first Super Bowl in the brand new Mercedes-Benz Stadium downtown. Right. Which looks like if you ever been to Atlanta since it's been built, look like it eats downtown. It's so big, but it's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful stadium. I've been in there a few times, and it's it's a unbelievably gorgeous stadium. But the game itself, a lot of people down now, it was a game that wasn't quite as remembered for a lot of the big plays because there was very few big plays. There was you know? none. There was only three points scored. The Rams were leading three to nothing. Up until the fourth quarter. Yes. And it was the second Super Bowl that the losing team failed to score a touchdown. The first one was back in Super Bowl six with the Cowboys and Dolphins. But, you know, and everybody was saying heading into this Super Bowl, is Jared Goff the next Drew Brees? I mean, uh, next Tom Brady, because they were setting it up that way. They were setting it up like, okay, can Jared Goff dethrone Tom Brady and win a Super Bowl and become the next great thing in the NFL. And as it turned out, not so much. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't, 
I mean, let's face it, the Rams, you know, even though the Rams had such a great record going in, they were playing the Patriots. And right. we all knew watching that game, it's like, well, at some point, Tom Brady's going to show up. And he did. Yeah, he did. Julian Edelman was the most, was it lead, was the game's most valuable player. They won 13 to three, one of the lowest Super Bowls ever. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was the lowest scoring Super Bowl ever. Um, yeah. Only 16 points between the two teams. You know, the lowest before then was Super Bowl nine between the Steelers and Vikings. That was 16 to six. But right. this one was, and, and at least in that Super Bowl, between it was in, also in New Orleans, but it was the last game at Tulane Stadium, and they played that game in bitterly cold weather and in the rain. So it was, so it, but in this Super Bowl with the Rams and Patriots, it was indoors for the most right. part. Yeah. And it, they had no excuse about the weather. But you had yeah. two teams, you know, I think it was the Patriots defense frustrating Jared Goff, and you know, everybody knows uh, Bill Belichick's um, success against young quarterbacks, you know, yeah. and yet Tom Brady making the plays, you know, the, from the, the big play of that, of that game for what I remember was a long pass to, to Gronk, to, to Gronk, to put the Rams in, to put the uh, Patriots in position to score their only touchdown. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we think about Super Bowls. This one is the kind, the one people kind of forget of the recent Super Bowls. Yes. Because they're really, what I mean, even you and I, I mean, before we even came on, I had to go back and refresh my memory. Because I just remember not a whole lot happened up until, and then the Rams, you know, then the Patriots won. I mean, we've been, you know, <laughs> we, all of us have watched, you know, decades worth of Super Bowls. This doesn't, this ranks right at the bottom of memorable ones. But, you know, you look at the score, though, it was a close game. It was only a seven-point game. Right. And, you know, and then with that game, what I remember mostly, you know, is that the Rams would get so close to just getting in the field goal range, and then something would happen, either a penalty or a turnover or something like that, or just a, just a bad read or a bad throw by golf to put them out of, put them out of range, and then they just couldn't do anything from that point on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, um, you know, the Rams were a good team, but the problem was, is once they got there, I mean, they faced the Patriots and they got outgamed. And, you know, if, if the Rams would have played another team, would they have won? Probably. But, you know, in this one, again, you're facing Belichick and you're facing Brady. And, you know, usually we know how that's going to end. And it's not going to end well. No. <clears throat> now, to shift gears a little bit, the team that the Rams are going to be playing in the Super Bowl is the Cincinnati Bengals. And the Bengals have played in two Super Bowls, and both of those Super Bowls against the 49ers. And now they're playing another NFC West team against the, the, um, the Rams, but their only two Super Bowls previously was against the 49ers. And they both had Bill Walsh, who was an assistant coach for the, for the Bengals in their early years. You know, but a lot of people don't realize the Bengals in the 70s was a pretty good team for the first de- first half of the decade. And then the, the late half, the later half, the latter half, they kind of fell into the doldrums. And then in 1981, they had a drastic uniform change, which changed, which basically changed the entire fortunes of the franchise. And I hate that. I still hate that uniform change. I like the old ones. I like, too. The bang- Me too. I like the the word Bengals on the helmet and just nothing fancy. And they changed the stripes and 
it was hard for me to root for either team in that game. So, uh, but had the Bengals, and this just goes to the fashionista in me, but had the Bengals kept their old uniform, they would have, they would have gone to the Super Bowl with or without the new uniforms. But um, I think it's, that started the myth that if you change your uniforms, eventually you're going to go to the Super Bowl. And that theory kind of has played out over the years with, um, you know, I'm just thinking here when the Broncos went to the Super Bowl. That's right. You know, the Buccaneers went to the Super Bowl after they got rid of the creamsicles. The Cardinals went to the Super Bowl a few years after they, they, they swapped out. So this is the game. This is the year that started the myth that new uniforms make for a better team, which, you know, I don't think record, I don't think you could probably prove just by, just by anecdotal evidence, but yeah, this was a good game though. I mean, and also too, this was played in Detroit. And if you've uh, ever seen the documentaries on this Super Bowl, it's interesting because, you know, this was back, you know, even though this was game was in 82, this game had been playing out since the mid seventies. I mean, when Detroit got built that dome, you know, so they lobbied hard to have the first cold weather game. And it turned out to be a disaster parking wise and traffic. And, um, you know, just, I was, I was watching um, on Peacock here recently, a six part documentary on Joe Montana. And they talk about that Super Bowl, talk about the traffic, about, you know, the buses being stuck. And it just, it was, you know, you know, the Super Bowl in New York that, that they lucked out literally by a few hours with weather, but yeah. it goes to show you that having a Super Bowl in a cold weather city, you know, like Minnesota is a challenge, but, and that's why they're building all these pal, you know, they've built these palaces in, in cold weather cities with domes, Indianapolis, um, obviously Minnesota, hopefully Chicago is going to build their own palace up in Arlington Heights where I was at yesterday. Um, but you know, this game, I mean, weather-wise, it was a disaster. But on the inside the, the stadium, it was a great game. And if memory serves me correct, I think that was Madden and Summerall's first Super Bowl. That was. That was you know, John Madden and Pat Summerall's very first Super Bowl airing together for CBS. Yeah. Um, one thing, mo- one, the most memorable thing about Super Bowl sixteen was the goal line stand. You know, yeah. the, the best goal line stand ever, the the – Get a little quick recap of the game. The 49ers got up 20 to nothing in the first half, you right. know, with, I mean, with a collection of, you know, turnovers by the Bengals. You know, Chris Collinsworth had a fumble on the eight yard line. Ken Anderson intercepted, had a pass intercepted in the end zone in the beginning of the game. But the Bengals rallied, scored a touchdown. Ken Anderson scored on a, on a rushing touchdown. And then, then the goal line stand happened. And had that goal line stand not happened, the Bengals might have won that game because they right. scored later on in the game. And but it was like a really good game, and it was a weird aspect because the Bengals outscored, outgained the 49ers by almost a hundred yards of total offense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, people forget how good Ken Anderson was as a quarterback. Yeah, yeah, Ken Anderson from Augustana College out west here in the Quad Cities um, should be just based on the numbers in the Hall of Fame. But because he didn't win this game, that's probably the reason why he's not in the Hall of Fame. You know, and the Bengals had always been like one of those sneaky good teams. You know, yeah. like I said in the beginning, in, in the early 70s, when they were still considered an expansion team, they were the 
first expansion team to win a division title. Yeah. In only like the, with their third season, they won the, the AFC Central. Yeah, I think and, in seven, I think, in, and I have to look here, but I think that was in 70. Yes. Um, because it was the rise of the expansion teams, both the Bengals and the Dolphins yes. got good real quick. And then obviously the Dolphins went to the Super Bowl in 71. Yeah, and the Bengals, you know, they they made the division, they won the division in 70. They made the playoffs again a couple more times in the, in the early 70s, but they didn't win their first playoff game until that year, until the year they went to the Super Bowl. Yeah. And, and they ended up beating my Chargers in the AFC Championship game in the Freezer Bowl, and um, which I'm still bitter about that, as even watching that game when I was an eight-year-old. But anyway, that's another story for another day. <laughs> But um, but that Bengals team was really really good. It, 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 you had made the point that they had changed their uniforms and they got good all of a sudden. But I think that team would have been good anyway because they had a yeah. perfect coach for that team, and that was Forrest Gregg. Right, right. And Forrest Gregg, I mean, this was his probably best team he ever coached. And you know, but for four turnovers, they would have been champs. That's right. That's right. I, I mean, mean, you. I'm had, looking I mean, at this. I'm looking at the stats right now. I mean, they had 24, they, they, they led in first downs. They, um, obviously they led, they led in, in passing yards. They led in, um, let's see here. They led in passing yards and did they lead in rushing? Uh, no, they didn't lead in rushing yards, but the rushing yards were 72 for the Bengals and 127 for the Niners. Um, but it was the turnovers that cost them. Right. You know, I think back, you know, there was a key turnover right at the beginning of the game when the 49ers fumbled the opening kickoff and the Bengals got it in deep in 49ers territory. And then Ken Anderson throws an ill-advised pass and intercepted in, in the end zone. And it, it just went on from there. And then Chris Collinsworth fumbled on the eight-yard line midway through the first yeah. quarter. And, you know, and they were able to – the Bengals were able to move the ball on the 49ers. They just could not get it into the end zone albeit with the turnovers, they couldn't get into the end zone until the third quarter. And then they yeah. rallied to make a game of it in the second half. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, San Francisco didn't score a touchdown, but they got the field goals and, you know, those, those two field goals that they made in the, uh, the second half are what really made the difference. That's, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you look at that, that team that the, that the Bengals had, you know, you, we talked about Ken Anderson, you, you know, then you had, you know, Pete Johnson, the big fullback, you know, who was running the ball, Chris Collinsworth, you know, ML Harris. Um, you had great guys on defense, you know, Lewis Breeden, um, Bron- the, one of the Bronner brothers. You know, they were a very, very good team all around on both sides of the ball, but the turnovers would doom any to any good team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it goes back. You know, it goes back to. I mean, like you said, if if they would have won, Ken Anderson likely would have made it to the Hall of Fame. I think. I mean, I and this would have. This... Ken Anderson deserves to be in the Hall of Fame just for the mustache alone. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and also the story too. I mean, he he came from a small little college out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, uh, Augustana. Yeah. Yeah, Augustana College, and. Uh, you know, but he's also he falls into that category like with Jim Plunkett, guys who should be in the Hall of Fame that aren't, and nobody can give a reasonable explanation why they're not in the Hall of Fame. Right. I mean, he was the one who pretty much pioneered the West Coast offense. Right. Yeah, he pioneered the West Coast offense when 
Um, Bill Walsh was an assistant under Paul Brown in the 70s, and he was the first quarterback to run that offense and ran it pretty successfully. Yeah. Because it yeah. fit it fit his game. It fit like the, the short passes, you know, you know, thrown out there in space, let the receiver or the back get the ball and then make their moves from there. You know, he was very a very accurate quarterback, had a decent arm strength, decent arm strength, but it was not the type that would throw the ball deep because he really didn't need to because that was not part of his game. Right. Yeah. Then you have a few years later, they play the Bengals. The Bengals reach go back to the Super Bowl with almost a completely different team against the 49ers. And of course, people remember how that game ended with Joe Montana throwing to John Taylor. That was the Jerry Rice MVP year, you know, when he won MVP of Super Bowl 23 in Miami. But I dare to say that maybe the Bengals were doomed before the kickoff about what happened pregame. Or what happened leading up to the game is that oh, one of their running backs right, yeah. was suspended and actually kicked off the team before the team even started. That was the first Super Bowl that I can remember something like that happening, where something happened pregame that caught everybody's attention and threw, every, threw basically the Bengals team and mindset completely out the window. It, it, it upset the chemistry. It did. The people who don't remember, it was Stanley Wilson. Stanley Wilson, the running back for the Bengals, was kicked off the team right before the right before the game started for cocaine. He was caught with cocaine. He was high in a bathroom right. Before, he was supposed to be in a team meeting, but they, yeah. one of the coaches found him in a bathroom high as a kite before the you know during the team meeting, and was subsequently kicked off the team, which pretty right. much upset the balance and upset the whole team. You know because. Stanley, you know, Stanley Wilson was a running back, and he was a key component of that Bengals offense. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, you just even look at you look at the score. I mean, might he have made the difference? You know, you could argue he could. You could, you really could argue it. Yeah. You know, it, that I mean, was it also was the year with the was... Bengals. That was also the year with the Bengals with Icky Woods. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was the Icky Woods year, and you know he became like a cult hero for it. He was like the the first real NFL cult hero since the Fridge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean that team. I mean you think of teams that you know they're part of that series on NFL Films has um, called the Missing Rings. This yes. is one of the teams that they shows. cover. Because yeah, my Chargers are one of them, <laughs> and I think, and I'd have to look back. I think there was one, maybe even on the '81 Bengals too. I don't recall off the top of my head. And um, but this was a great team, and this is where you know. But it was after this game where you know, the Bengals, you know, for twenty some years were pretty much irrelevant. Yeah, that was the like the last really good Bengals team that that a lot of people were like, "Ooh, they playing the Bengals this week." Ooh, and this was like. I mean, this iteration of the Bengals for this year, um, that, that make you think back to those Bengals teams of the 80s with, with Boomer Esaias and, and Tim McGee and, 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 and Anthony Munoz and Tim Crumry, you know, that squad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you just look at the – I mean, they had a lot of players there. I mean, most of them are in the Hall of Fame, but players we still recognize today, Boomer Esaias and – um, you know, Chris Collinsworth. I mean, they're household names, obviously because of James Brooks, um, Anthony Munoz. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, I mean, on that team, the only Hall of Famer was was Munoz. But then you look at, you know, and he had Sam Weish, too. I mean, he was yeah. quite a personality as coach, too. And, uh, and he, you know, he was also the assistant coach, and he was on the 49ers staff back in 81. So he, knew right. John, he was Joe Montana's quarterback coach. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Right. You know, yeah. you got, um, that, that Bengals team was also, um, Sam Weiss, you mentioned him, who was also a quarterback for the Bengals, you know, back in the early, back in the late sixties, early seventies, he was one of the quarterbacks for the Bengals. Um, but that, you know, that Super Bowl, everybody remembers the John Taylor catcher right at the end of the Super Bowl with 34 right. seconds to play. But the Bengals got the lead because of a kickoff return by Stanford Jennings, a little-known defensive back who turned it, which basically shocked everybody with a kickoff return right after a 49er field goal to give the Bengals the lead. If I'm not mistaken, it gave them the lead. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I don't I – mean, I'll have to take a look here. I don't recall how that happened. Again, it's been you – know, we're going back, God, almost This is eight I mean, I was – yeah, doing that Super Bowl, I was sixteen. That was like one of the first Super Bowls I went to. I actually, went to a Super Bowl party and watched the game at a at a friend's house. Um, but uh, I remember the kickoff return by Stanford Jennings, and I was like, "Oh my God, the the they might actually win this game," you know? Yeah. Well, and then again, this you know this is kind of where you know the legend of Joe Montana. Um. You know, he'd already won. You know, he was already cemented as a great quarterback. This is where he became a legend. Yeah, I mean, I was just about to ask you, do you think that this game was the one game that cemented Joe Montana's legacy and Jerry Rice's legacy for that matter? I do because it's the game we always talk about. Because if you look at the other Super Bowls, you know, you look at the Super Bowl and Super Bowl, the first Super Bowl, you know, they won that by seven points. There were no last-minute heroics. Um, the next Super Bowl against the Dolphins, the Niners completely dominated. Yeah. But on this one, he just – he was cool. This is where Joe Cool, I think, repeat with it. And I, I could be wrong, but, you know, if ever there was a game where it, this is where Joe Cool Joe Cool became, you know, this was it because he just – he's like, I got this. And, you know – didn't even, you know, we've all heard the stories about, hey, look, John Candy's in the end zone. I was just thinking about that. You're right. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then the next year, I mean, they completely blew out the Broncos. So this was the game that cemented his his status as, you know, not so much he was going to be in the Hall of Fame without this game, but this is the one where, you know, he's considered probably the greatest quarterback all time, at least by guys you know, at least for the 20th century and guys of our generation. Yeah. yeah I mean, because I, this is back, this is back during the rule changes too. And he took a beating when he was a quarterback. Oh yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that. And plus he was also something of a semi scrambling quarterback as well. Yeah. He, uh, and that's, that's the good thing. I don't know if you've seen it yet on Peacock, but the six part documentary upon his career, you know, focuses on his college career. And I remember his college career. I remember him playing in college. I think it was 10 years old when, uh, you know, that first game he played in the Cotton Bowl. Remembering, I remember that well. Against the University um, of Houston, yeah. Yeah, and um, and that was in the cold, too. That was back, you know, kind of like now where you just don't know what's going to happen in Texas. It's either going to be nice or it's not going to be nice, and there's no in-between. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
I, th- I don't know if that was the chicken soup game or not. I that was that exactly what the chicken soup game. Well, yeah, I don't. Yeah, so, but you know, we knew he was a great quarterback, and he just cemented it with that game because that was a great Bengals team. Again, they just they they left him too much time on the clock, and that's what, really what it boiled down to. Another play that I remember of that game was J- Joe Montana threw a touchdown pass to Jerry Rice in the corner of the end zone. But what I remember was the play before when Joe Montana threw a pass over the middle to Brent Jones, the, the intended receiver, and Lewis Billups had a chance to intercept the pass right in the end zone. The ball was in his hands and yeah. dropped it on the goal line. And then Joe Montana throws a Jerry right to the very next play. And I remember Dickenberg and Merlin Olsen was doing the game. And I remember Merlin Olsen distinctly saying, that could come back to haunt the Bengals because you have to make an interception on that particular situation. And Lewis Billups, right. I, well, I want to say it was Lewis Billups, either Lewis Billups or David Fulcher, one of those guys, one of the defensive backs, had a right in his hands and dropped it. And I was like, that could have pretty much cemented it right there. So oh, yeah. we've seen in a number of situations where in the two Super Bowls that the Bengals were in, that they could have been Super Bowl champions had the ball bounced different ways. They had chances, you know, in both yeah. situations. And that in, in them winning either one of those situations, any one of those Super Bowls, they could have changed the entire course of that franchise. Because everyone right. knows what happens afterwards is that they went into this, they went into the abyss for close to 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, Paul Brown died during that time period too. Right. And, you know, I mean, I mean, Mike Brown made, made a lot of dumb decisions over the years and, you know, you hear the stories and, you know, you read stuff and it's like, and, you know, he would have hired, I mean, he didn't do his research when he was looking for coaches, not until, you know, years later, you know, um, what's um, Marv Lewis when he hired Marv, Marv Lewis, Lewis yeah. you know, and you know, unfortunately, Marv Lewis never got, never even sniff, you know, never even got close to where they they are now. Right, and then you think about the one thing I remember, know about the the, the Bengals. The the one thing that would just ir- irk me and irritate me is that they would be in big games, and they would be better. The like the one game that I really remember is a either it was a wild card game or a divisional game against the Steelers a couple of years ago, where they had the Steelers, and then thanks to a couple of dumb, you know, unnecessary roughness, personal foul penalties, they would have beat the Steelers. And who knows what would have happened then, because that was when they had Carson Palmer and Chad Johnson right. and, you know, T.J. Uchimazada. They had some really good players in doing the They had Ocho Cinco. Of- they had, you know, they had some great guys. You know, and even before then, you know, when they had Jeff Blake and uh, Corey Dillon at running back, they had some really, really talented players that come through Cincinnati. But it was just it was one of the things it was just either the coaching or lack of discipline. That was like the one of the biggest problems with the Bengals during that time of the late 90s, early 2000s was the lack of discipline. Yeah, and they were, team. you know, in their division. I mean, they had good teams in their division. And too, the, the division so. didn't help with Pittsburgh right. and Baltimore. I mean, that not, really not so help. much Cleveland, but the Browns. I mean, not so much Cleveland, but the Ravens and the Steelers were always better teams. Right. Now, before I let you go, um, I, you know, I got to put you on the spot. We talked about the Rams. We talked about the Bengals. Who you got and why? 
I'm going with the Bengals. I just think, uh, you know what, Joe Burrow's got a chip on his shoulder. And, I mean, I think it's going to be – hopefully it's just going to go right down to the wire. But, you know, the last two games we've counted out the Bengals. The Bengals were not favored in the last two games, and they won. That's right. So I'm I'm kind of going with, you know, the Bengals on this one. And plus, you know, Joe Burrow play, has played both games, you know, played all season with a chip on his shoulder. I think so. You're right. I mean, right now in the, in the current climate of the AFC, you have so many really good quarterbacks. I mean, you know, yeah. you got Joe Burrow, you have, you know, Justin Herbert, you have, of course, Mahomes, you got Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. You have a lot of really good quarterbacks in that AFC and they're going to be batting it out for like the next yeah. decade. You yeah. Know? And, you know, and, and, and the Rams, I mean, they, that was not an easy game against the 49ers. Yeah, and that's a rivalry too. Between the Rams and 49ers, that's a rivalry that dates back for like almost a thousand years, seem like. But right. you know, that's that's just a bitter rivalry. And then plus the city rivalry between the Ram between Los Angeles and San Francisco too. Yeah. You know, and you know and, and, Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and the Rams did not play well. I mean, if you remember that first drive, they tossed an interception down at the goal line. Right. You know, and Stafford, who is a great quarterback, watched him while he was here at Georgia. He sometimes have a tendency. He has he has a lot of farve in him. Yeah, he has a lot of yeah, farve. I, in him. He's he's a gunslinger, and he has a lot right. of farve in him. And you know, everybody knows farve could throw you into a game or throw you out of one. And yeah, and, and Stafford had to do that in, in Detroit. He had to. He had no choice. But. Right. Here in, in L.A., is he's become a little bit more conservative. He's, he has a lot of games under his belt. But well, I just and he's think, got but more in my pressure. personal opinion, he, I think that Cincinnati might end up winning this game. I really do. Yeah, he's got more pressure to win. He does. He does. Burrow, he's a young quarterback. He's, it's, you know, his he has second, a, it's, his, yeah, it's his second year. I mean, really. Really, it's his first year. I mean, because he lost most of his year last year because of an injury. Yeah. Um, but really, you know – He's been him and Jamar Chase, you know, from both from LSU. They have been setting the, the the whole league on fire, and then this might be their showcase right here. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, it's going to be hopefully just going to go right down to the wire. And, that's and all really we can Also, that that's all that matters to me. It's like, okay, am I entertained? Yeah, really? <laughs> or you're not I entertained? Yeah, <laughs> you know, if I'm not entertained, it's you know much like that Super Bowl, you know, fifty three with the Rams and the Patriots. None of us were really entertained. It was a close game, but eh, we none of us. But no, I you know, I mean, the la- we've been spoiled the last few weeks with football. Oh, you talking that about Super it. Wild Card weekend? That was kind of a bust all around. But the the last two weeks of the playoffs. You know, we were all all were spoiled with some great. I mean, some of the best football any of us have ever seen. That's right. That's right. So, what you guys got going on on the um, from the fifty five yard line? Well, you know what? We just had our first uh, podcast here a few weeks ago, and we're kind of we're kind of slow on kicking stuff out. I mean, between work, we, really, it's it, a lot of it boils down to I've just got so much going on uh, career wise and. Uh, and, and and at home, Scott obviously is retired, but hopefully in the next uh, hopefully in the next few weeks we'll have something coming. I don't know what it is. I got no previews because we haven't lined anybody up. But yeah. we'd like to focus this year more. You know, we 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 focused on American and Canadian football. Both, you know, we kind of did a whole hodgepodge of things last year. 
like to try to steer more towards a Canadian game and, you know, and we'll see how that goes. And I know I've got a bunch of life changes coming up this year. So I don't think, no, if we're going to kick out as many as we did in, in 2000 and, uh, in 2021. Um, but with the USFL kind of coming on board too, I mean, yeah. um, you know, that's, and we've already, you know, we've already talked USFL history with Jeff Perlman and uh, I'd like to, you know, kind of get, um, you know, folks at the USFL project. I want to have a, have a sit down, but again, it boils down to all of us. You know, you're, you're like me, it's, it's finding that time, that free time to sit down and have those conversations. And um, the best part is when you do find the free time, you want it to go on forever. You're right. You're right. You're definitely right. Well, Greg, it was great to have you on board once again to talk about the Rams and the and the Bengals history right before Super Bowl 56. And um, I want to thank you once you again watch- for coming on, man. I really do. Well, thanks. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You watching the Pro Bowl tonight? I'm going to watch a little bit of that, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to watch. I haven't watched the Pro Bowl in years. I was explaining to somebody, I think it was yesterday, about kind of the whole history of the Pro Bowl. And now that it's back in the States, and if you remember, and we'll just to wrap this all up, you know, I remember growing up back the Pro Bowl, you know, when the Pro Bowl came on, it was, it was the week after the Super Bowl, but it was kind of an event. It was on primetime TV. Yeah, it was. It was, it was played, it was played in the, it was played in the continental U.S. Meaning, I mean, my first recollection of the, the Pro Bowl was in 77, Bob Greasy was actually made the Pro Bowl. I think he started for the AFC. But the a- AF- AFC and NFC wore helmets that had, you know, they didn't wear their team helmets. They wore new helmets for this. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, watching the Pro Bowl when it first started being played in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I, that was my first recollection of the Pro Bowl, which was the early 80s. And I would go back and I saw pictures of the Pro Bowl being played like in the, in the, maybe the Astrodome and, you know, had one at the Coliseum and at another one, some some other places. They played in Seattle. I remember that, like, I think like the next year or something. Right. And um, so I'm, I, you know, I'm hoping to actually, you know, again, it goes back to what I said. Am I entertained? So yeah. hopefully tonight I'll be entertained by a Pro Bowl, but we've seen in past Pro Bowls where uh, there, nobody tackles. I mean, it's not, yeah. the game is not yeah. played. It's, it's, it's touch football for, for more or less. You right. Know. And obviously there's a reason for that, but. Yeah. That's right. You're right. Yeah. And nobody wants to ruin their career in an exhibition game. In an that, exhibition that's game. That's understandable. Right. Yeah. But. You know, I know there was uh, a time period where they're like, we got to fix this. Nobody's watching this because nobody's, you know, nobody's playing defense. So. Right. Yeah, and that's like that for like most all-star games that I find, you know, the NBA all-star game, they kind of juiced it up a little bit where, where the all-stars, you know, you have a captain of one team and a captain of another team and you pick sides, you know, like, like you did on a playground, you know, we kind of juiced it up a little bit. You yeah. know, and in the NHL, they did some things to juice that up a little bit. Major League Baseball, oh. you know, there's so much you could do with baseball. You know? Yeah, and Major League Baseball, let's face it. I mean, the All-Star game is still kind of still a game. I mean, it's yeah. an exhibition game. But it's one of those games that I think all of us who grew up with it, watch it, and it still matters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Greg, it was once again, glad to have you aboard, man, and you're welcome back at any time. All right, buddy. Thank you. Thank you much, my friend. And we will be talking to you on the flip side here.
All right. And we'll be right back right after this short break. Welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're locked in to the Super Bowl 56 edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And before we get on with the rest of the show, just a quick reminder that we have sponsors here, and one of our sponsors is newspapers.com. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan, and if you're into sports history, you definitely need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from a variety of countries such as the United States, Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and so, so many more. Uh, Those pages actually date back to the 1700s, so that's pretty interesting. To get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com, you could do that by visiting the sportshistory.com sportshistorynetwork.com I should say slash newspapers and with a paid subscription you also be helping to support the production of this and so many other sports history network shows that is once again sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers also you could check out our twitter feed here at the historically speaking sports podcast and that twitter feed is historically sp2 and you could go there to get your daily dose of sports history. And also, you could drop us a line or two at our email address, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Once again, that email address is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast. You know, if you like it, just don't please subscribe and you could get new episodes every week of this of this podcast. Now, usually this is the spot where we count down the top five sports moments from the week. But since this is Super Bowl week and this is our Super Bowl 56 edition, we're going to highlight the seven Super Bowls that took place in the Los Angeles area. So here we go. Super Bowl one played on January the 15th, 1967. Taking place at the historic Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, the Green Bay Packers, champions of the National Football League, took on the champs of the new American Football League, the Kansas City Chiefs. This was the first evidence of the new pro football merger agreement between the two leagues, which would finally take effect fully in the fall of 1970. Now, the game was closed through most of the first half as the Packers held a slim 14-10 lead at halftime. Yet the momentum of the game changed suddenly in the beginning of the third as Packers defensive back Willie Wood intercepted a pass from Chiefs quarterback Lynn Dawson and returned it to Kansas City's 10-yard line. And then from there, the Packers would dominate for the remainder of the game behind the play of Packers quarterback Bart Starr. Starr would finish the game with 250 yards passing and two touchdowns and was named the inaugural game's most valuable player as Green Bay cruised to a 35-10 win over Kansas City capturing their first of back-to-back Super Bowl titles. Super Bowl VII, January 14, 1973. The Miami Dolphins were in the Super Bowl for the second straight year, 
But this season, Miami came in undefeated. Yet, for whatever reason, they were underdogs to Washington, making their, making their Super Bowl debut. The game taking place once again at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. The Dolphins' defense controlled the game from start to finish, limiting Washington's potent offense that was led by quarterback Billy Kilmer and, the, and running of that year's most valuable player, Larry Brown. Their defense was good enough to keep Washington not only out of the end zone, but off the scoreboard completely. Washington's only touchdown came on a blocked field goal and a touchdown by Mike Bass. The two Dolphin defenders that led the charge for the no-name defense was defensive tackle Manny Fernandez and defensive back Jake Scott, whose two interceptions earned him Super Bowl VII's most valuable player. More on him later in the broadcast. The Dolphins defeated the, the Redskins 14-7, yet side note to this game, had the Dolphins made the field goal, the score would have been 17-0 and they would have finished the 1972 with a record of 17-0. Perfection at its purest. Super Bowl XI, played on January 9, 1977. In the first Super Bowl to be played in Pasadena's Rose Bowl, the Oakland Raiders and Minnesota Vikings were in the first Super Bowl to feature past participants that never won. The Raiders were in their second Super Bowl while the Vikings were in their fourth. After a scoreless first quarter, the Raiders dominated the second, scoring 16 points in the quarter, featuring key pass receptions to receiver Fred Bolitnikov, whose four receptions for 79 yards earned them the game's most valuable player honors. The Raiders' 32-14 win was the Raiders' first of three Super Bowl titles. Super Bowl XIV played on January 20, 1980. In the first Super Bowl appearance by one of this year's Super Bowl participants, the Los Angeles Rams, they faced off against the defending Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers right up the road from Los Angeles in Pasadena. While the Steelers were the defending Super Bowl champs, the Rams went into the Super Bowl with a 9-7 record, the worst by any Super Bowl participant at that point. Even though on paper the game seemed to be a mismatch, it was one of the most exciting Super Bowls in the first 20 years of the big game. The Steelers won 31-19 as Terry Bradshaw claimed his second Super Bowl MVP award, but the score of the game was not a clear indication of the type of game this was. Behind backup quarterback Vince Ferragamo, who was replacing an injured Pat Hayden, the Rams made a game of it and actually led heading into the fourth quarter. But a pair of Steelers touchdowns in the, in the final stanza and a late Jack Lambert interception sealed the deal for Pittsburgh's fourth Super Bowl win. Super Bowl 17 played on January 30th, 1980. Ten years after the Dolphins' perfect season and their win in Super Bowl 7, they were back in the big game taking on their rivals from a decade earlier, Washington. The game, while it was the climax of the season that was shortened by a player strike, saw a seesaw battle in the first half. Yet in the second half, the running of John Riggins and the blocking of Washington's offensive line, known as the Hogs, dominated the second half, and the Dolphins rushed for 160. Riggins rushed for 166 yards and the go-ahead touchdown to give Washington their first Super Bowl title, 27-17, in the Rose Bowl. Super Bowl 21, played on January the 25th, 1987. Pasadena's Rose Bowl were once again the site of two teams that were looking for their first Super Bowl championship. The Denver Broncos, led by John Elway, who, van who vanquished the Cleveland Browns in the AFC Championship game thanks to the drive, 
they will be taking on the New York Giants led by NFL Most Valuable Player Lawrence Taylor. The Broncos, who were in their second Super Bowl in their franchise history, were taking on the Giants, who was in their first, eyeing their first NFL title since 1956. But it was the play of New York Giant quarterback Phil Simms that supplied the Hollywood story, as he gained MVP honors in the Giants' 39-20 win. At one point in the game, Sims completed 10 consecutive passes against the Broncos defense and finished with 268 yards and three touchdown passes and completed an amazing 22 of 25 passes. Super Bowl 27 played on January the 31st, 1993. In the most recent Super Bowl to take place in Pasadena, this was the beginning of the Cowboys dynasty of the 90s. At Dallas, coached by Jimmy Johnson, soundly defeated the Buffalo Bills 52-17. The Cowboys outscored the Bills 28-10 in the first half and never looked back. This was the Bills' third consecutive Super Bowl defeat. The star of the game was a player who played his college ball in that very same stadium, and that was Troy Aikman, who finished with 273 yards, four touchdown passes, which was good enough to win the game's MVP award. This was the first Super Bowl win for the Cowboys since beating Denver in Super Bowl XII and their first, in three, first of three in the decade. And this concludes this look back at the Super Bowls that took place in the City of Angels. And coming up next, our shout out. And this episode's shout out goes to a player that was the personification of a defense that earned his famous nickname from former Cowboys coach Tom Landry. Stay tuned. back with our final segment of the show which is our weekly shout out and this is our Super Bowl edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast and I would like to send one shout out to the first defensive back ever to be named Super Bowl Most Valuable Player. There are a total of 47 men that carry the title of Super Bowl Most Valuable Player and some are household names while others are just household dwellers. In 1972, the Miami Dolphins had reached their second Super Bowl in a year where they didn't lose a single game. In fact, the last game that they lost was in the previous Super Bowl against the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl VI in New Orleans. When asked about the Dolphins' defense in preparation for that game, Cowboys coach Tom Landry said that they were a very good defense, yet I just don't know any of their names. Thus began the nickname, the no-name defense. And they were not an overly physical defense, but they just got the job done. So good, in fact, they quite nearly recorded the first shutout in Super Bowl history against Washington in Super Bowl VII. There were notable players on that defense like Hall of Famer Nick Bonacanti, also all pros Curtis Johnson and Manny Fernandez. But the player that was the most important on that day in the L.A. Coliseum was defensive back Jake Scott out of the University of Georgia. 
Playing cornerback opposite of the hard-hitting Dick Anderson, Scott would pick off a pair of Billy Kilmer passes in the game, including a one-handed interception that he controlled right before it hit the ground and the other to end a Washington rally, picking it off in the end zone and returning it near midfield. Scott was drafted in the seventh round by the Dolphins in 1970 and played in Miami for six seasons and moved on to Washington for, for, for his final three seasons in the league. During his nine-year career in the National Football League, he recorded 49 interceptions, he was a five-time Pro Bowl selection, and a two-time All-Pro with a pair of Super Bowl rings, and of course, Most Valuable Player Award from Super Bowl VII. In the Super Bowls that have taken place in Los Angeles, the MVP award winners were a who's who in the annals of NFL lore, with the likes of Bart Starr, Troy Aikman, Phil Simms, Fred Belitnikoff. But the name of Jake Scott is not that well known. Very fitting from a player that was a vital member of the no-name defense. And that concludes this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Actually, our Super Bowl 56 edition. I'd like to thank everyone out there for listening. Have a good, have a good time watching the game on Sunday. My prediction, I think the Bengals are going to win 27 23 and a nail biter. So thank you guys for listening and until next time, so long. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even write an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, Fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.